Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. How come Vilch could beat Medvedev, but he couldn't beat Yoshi Nishioka? Novak Djokovic played the longest three-setter of his career, and Karen Hatchinov still very good at majors. This is Tales from the Booth, day six and seven, Roland Garros 2023. I am calling week one matches for TC+. And I will be telling you every day about the matches that I call. Uh, we have to catch up on two days, day six and day seven, Friday and Saturday, because yesterday uh, I had to do three. My schedule has been very tight. This has been a grind. I did not have time to do both Tales from the Booth and three and prep for the next day. Uh, but uh, this is actually my last day of really calling singles matches tomorrow. Uh, so tomorrow I will figure something out. All right. I'll, I'll do something. But it's not going to be your typical Tales from the Booth because I will be calling some doubles. I will not be doing Tales from the Booth about doubles. Right? Makes sense. I have a lot to get off my chest, though. I'm excited to get into this one. So much to discuss. Uh, three, three uh, or two matches that I called, two men's matches that I called. Uh, the Djokovic match, I I watched not every single point, but most of it. And I'll do super, super quick thoughts at the very end about Alcaraz Chapo and uh, Fritz Sarindolo. Very quick. All right. It's fresh on my mind. So let me start with Tiago Zaibach Vilch, who is out at the hands of Yoshihito Nishioka. Nishioka with back to back major fourth rounds. How about that? He had never done it before the Australian Open this year. He had played a lot of majors. Uh, he had played. 26, 26 main draws at slams, and he never made the fourth round, and now he's made two in a row. I don't know what to make of it. He has had good draws. Anyway, uh, it's I'm also happy for him. This was an endurance win for Nishioka. It was an endurance win. If I had to label it as just one thing, I am taking my stamp and I am putting it on this match. Nishioka with an endurance win. Because in the first half of the match, when both of them were fresh, I thought Vilch was the better player. And I'm not just saying that because he went up two sets to one. I even thought Vilch was the better player in the second set and Nishioka kind of stole it. But it was, you know, it was obviously close and that happens. The fourth and the fifth set, 
it wasn't that Nishioka made a tactical or a technical adjustment. It's that he could play his tennis. Vilch could no longer play his. And that is why this is an endurance win for Nishioka. By the way, Wolf in the first round against uh, Nishioka against JJ Wolf, which by the way, I thought JJ would win. Uh, that was also, from what I saw, and I didn't actually watch the match, but I, I read a little bit about it. I saw some chatter about it on Twitter. It seemed like by the end of that, J.J. Wolf didn't have anything physically left in the tank. So that two sets to love comeback in the first round for Nishioka, which is the only reason, obviously, that he was able to get to this stage, that might have also been an endurance win. But this was that. Because when both players were fresh, I thought Vilch was better. You look at total points one in set one, plus 11 for Vilch in set two, plus one for Vilch. In set three, plus nine for Vilch. Uh, in set uh, four as well, I don't have it up right now, uh, and I didn't write it down. But in set four, it was like a two-point differential. It wasn't until set five where Nishioka really had a, a dominant set where it wasn't just you know a couple of uh, big points that where he was a little bit more clutch. Uh, which again, like that's the tennis scoring system. Y you can never take anything away from a player who is able to get it done. Uh, in particular sets, despite winning less points. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But I do think in this case, it's a reflection of Vilch applying the majority of the pressure, having the easier ways to win points on a more regular basis, and kind of everything breaking right for Nishioka until the end when there were no ifs, if, ends, or buts about who was going to be able to win the match. It was a six-love fifth set. It was clear after really the second game, after two-love in the fifth set, it was over. Nishioka was going to win the match. I mean, there was very little doubt. So how did we get to that point? Uh, I mean, first of all, I also want to say the second set. Uh, Vilch was broken at 6-5, serving for the set. And then blew a 6-3 lead in the tiebreak. He had triple set point. And he lost all three points. So the chances were there. I think it could have been a straight set win. Because again, I don't think it was nerves that were the issue. Or you know, finish line tension. It was uh, a combination of fatigue. And how Vilch handled that fatigue. Ground stroke power was a major mismatch. And Nishioka wasn't getting the errors he needed because Vilch was working the point and playing with margin. And the forehand, as expected, was the X factor in this match. As long as, you know, Vilch had the patience and the consistency uh, to be able to use it repeatedly and get his, his feet in the right position to hit it and wait for the, the right times and attack with a little bit of, of safety, which his power gives him the ability to do but his mind needs to be working the right way in order for him to do it. There were some things that were working for Nishioka. Uh, defending to the Vilch backhand, Yoshi's very talented at this. Uh, from very difficult positions on the court, Nishioka can defend away from the middle of the court. And, and that's a quality that players who are really good on defense, they have that quality. Watch Nishioka from defensive positions, how often he's able to actually put the ball in a really good spot. 
not only make it. So he's uh, he's got great racket talent when he's in emergency situations, desperate situations. It's really, really impressive. And in this case, the task is clear. If I'm defending against Vilch, can I make him hit a backhand? He might still hurt me. He might still finish. But there's a better chance he's going to miss. There's a better chance uh, it's going to work out in my favor. Uh, Counterattacking is another way that Nishioka is able to use that those kind of those same skills uh, when Vilch is making out-of-position attacks. Out-of-position attacks either because he's off the court because he's run around his backhand, so he's off the center line. That happens very often with Vilch. He desperately runs around his backhand on a regular basis. Uh, but it's not only that. Sometimes it's just uh, stepping inside the court, way inside the court, uh, normally, I think for this to really be a thing, you have to be at least, I don't know, three, four feet in front of the baseline. Uh, and in that case, you're not in position to uh, defend any kind of ball that doesn't come short or directly at you. So good counterattacking from Nishioka, that worked. Uh, good defending to the backhand, that worked. Uh, attacking with height on the cross-court forehand. I don't think Vilch was very good when the ball got old over his shoulders and he was on the run. Uh, pretty uncomfortable handling that shot. Was Nishioka able to really put Vilch in that position on a super regular basis? No, but in the moments that he did, it was very effective. Look, none of those things were making up for the massive disruptor in this match of Vilch's forehand. None of those things that Nishioka was doing well was a big enough factor to match the fact that Vilch was just, a, just like in the Medvedev match, just controlling things with that forehand side. In the third set, actually, had some unbelievable moments offensively on the backhand, both in rally, but even more so on return, second serve return in particular. Nishioka being the lefty is always going to hit his second serve into the righty backhand, and he's going to do that with ease. And that's one spot where Vilch actually doesn't like to run around so much. Uh, so there were some big backhand moments in the third set. But, like, I'll give you an example. Vilch through the first three games of the third set, Nine winners. Nine winners in three games. Break a serve. Three love lead. Served pretty well in that set throughout as well. So it was on it was on his racket. And then something changed. All right, let's get to that part. Here's where it changed. First game of the fourth set. Vilch just won the third set 6-2. He's up 40 love in his opening service game. And he just hit two aces in a row. And the crowd is getting into it. Boom, first ace. Boom, second ace. And now it's like, oh, here we go. 40 love, two aces in a row. Are you going to hit a third? Because I think the uh, I think even the point before was an unreturnable. So it's one of those things like, with the crowd getting excited. Like, oh, go for, go for another ace. Go for another ace. He does. He misses the first serve. Um, and he ends up going for this heat check forehand on 40 love. A heat check forehand. I, if you guys aren't basketball fans listening, a heat check is when you've hit a bunch of uh, threes usually in a row and you end up taking a bad three because you're so hot that you just get to go for it. You almost get a pass. I mean, in basketball, shot selection is just as big a deal as it is in tennis, believe it or not. And uh, so Vilch goes for a heat check, a home run, a miracle shot. Uh, low percentage, and he doesn't make it, 
but it was a stupid shot to go for. And then on the next point, he double faults, but he doesn't just double fault. He he hits the ball like four feet long. And now it's 40-30. And Nishioka gets back into the game, goes to deuce. He breaks serve. He breaks serve from down 40 love at the start of the fourth set after Vilch just won the, the third, 6-2, has all the momentum, hits back-to-back -back aces, and it's like, it, that game felt like an exhibition for a second there. Like the Vilch hit a third ace in a row competition. And suddenly it's the Vilch just got broken. And he didn't disengage immediately. But, you know, Nishioka played well at the start of the set. You know, he became a backboard. It was 3-1 in the fourth. Vilch serving. And he starts serving volleying every point. And that's when I first started to raise an eyebrow. Like, what's going on here? What is he doing? It's okay for him to serve and volley once in a while. I actually still think he's a very talented volleyer. I actually think his footwork is pretty bad at net. His technique is questionable. But he's really uh, talented as a volleyer. And actually, the results are pretty good. I think he's good at net. Uh, but he should not be serving volleying. Not every point. He actually holds serve. Somehow, some way, he holds serve. Uh, but I was just like, that's not good. I don't care that he held. That's a bad sign for the rest of this match. Is he tired? Or has he given up? Is he conserving energy for the fifth? Like, what is it here? Because clearly, he doesn't want to play tennis in the best... In, in He doesn't want to play his game right now. So what's going on? And it doesn't stay that way for the rest of the fourth set where he's just serving volleying all the time. But it does have the same vibe to it. This like very, lots of strange tactical decisions, just unpredictable, weird kind of curveballs constantly, never playing kind of a disciplined style. Uh, mainly just extreme aggression. And he was actually holding serve because if, if you want to play ultra aggressive, you can hold serve like that. You're going to get balls to attack on the plus one and you can make it work. But it was costing him on the return. On the return where you're not going to get those short balls as quickly. You might need to defend for a couple shots. You might need to play from neutral and work the point. It's the return game where you need to do that. So it's fine that, you know, you hold serve, but he loses this this uh, fourth set 6-4 because he's not able to really play return games. Uh, he's not willing to really rally. Start of the fifth set, you could see an effort to re-engage. He really did try. First game of the fifth set. And you have to just credit Nishioka here. He played an awesome return game and broke. And look, this is Yoshi Nishioka, and these conditions are unbelievably slow. You can play well and still get your serve broken. That's a reality of these conditions and this opponent. But guess what? Guess what's also a reality of playing Nishioka on slow clay? You are going to get a chance to break back. But instead of... Instead of Vilch understanding that and being like, okay, yeah, I got my serve broken, but it's the first game of the fifth set. There's 
he needs to win five more games. His serve isn't that good. I'm going to have chances every single game. So let's dig in and get back to, to chopping wood. That's not what happened. It was the knockout blow, even though it shouldn't have been the knockout blow. Because Nishioka just had to be a backboard, and he knew it was guaranteed that Vilch would make a mistake on a low percentage attempt or a sloppy footwork error. The intensity wasn't there. The, he wasn't moving his feet. He wasn't willing to play enough shots. He wasn't willing to build. The feet got heavy. The mind turned off. That's what happened here. What does that look like? Kamikaze net approaches. Maximum speed flat forehands that barely have a chance to find the court. Half committed drop shots. Forehands that he's trying to crush even though he got the footwork wrong. And clearly, uh, you know, the, the contact point is too low or the contact point is too close. And he's still trying to crush it. That's what that looks like. So what happened here? Did he get tired? Did his legs go on him? Look, this is the second time he's ever played a major. He played a grueling five-set match uh, in the first round. Uh, I think the second round was uh, four. Yeah, it was four sets against Guido Pela. Was he tired? Okay, maybe. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt, Vilch. Let's say he was tired. Sure, but you have to fight. You have to fight. You have to be willing to suffer. And I felt immense disappointment in his effort, not because I was rooting for him, right? But because I wanted that tennis match, especially calling the match, I wanted it to be good. And it wasn't, it, it stunk at the end because you had one guy not trying hard in a major third round. It was hard to stomach and it was frustrating for me to watch. Because it wasn't lack of ability that prevented him from at least having a chance to win the match. And maybe if he did have 100% effort there, maybe he still would have lost. But it was a lack of trying. And we need to be willing to say that. If we're analyzing tennis, just as we get to praise the best, I'm not going to name you know uh, any particular names, but you know the players who are constantly busting their asses. If we get to praise that, then we also have to call out the other side. And this was the other side. And it doesn't matter if he was tired because that's where, yes, it hurts and it's hard. And you might not be able to do everything you want to do, but you still need to try to push yourself through that. And I just thought he he completely quit. That's what it that's what I that's what I saw here. So um let me say this, just ending on Vilch, and then I want to do a quick word about Nishioka. Uh, everything I said, you know, I said, I think he's going to be a top 30 player after he beat Medvedev. I still think that, but I listened back to that Tales from the Booth, which I don't always do. Sometimes I post a video I never, I never watch, I never listen, uh, but I did listen back to that. And listening back, I, I said to myself, I do wish I threw in more caveats there. A caveat that, like, although I feel like a player with that ability is going to figure it out. Like, mentally, at some point, things are going to click. They're going to get professional. They're going to kind of mature. 
Like that is my my inkling whenever a player like this is in this kind of situation. And especially once you start to see the results turn on the challenger tour, I feel like, you know, and, and they're moving in the right direction. I feel like it's going to happen. So I'm not taking back my statement that I think he's going to be a top 30 player. I still do think that, but it's if, if, if the mental stuff works itself out and it's not a guarantee at all. And this was obviously an eye-opening kind of watch for me as I just saw some of the stuff like, oh, as a competitor, there's fragility here because that was not a performance of, a, of really a great competitor. And for Nishioka, it was. Um, and it has to be because if Yoshi Nishioka didn't know how to compete hard at all times, even though he gets super negative, all right? And, and don't, don't let that kind of cloud the fact that he's willing to kind of run for four hours, match in and match out. Um, if he wasn't willing to do that, you wouldn't know his name. He wouldn't be in the top 100, plain and simple. Um, yeah, let's look at Nishioka kind of uh, for a second. Um, if this is kind of like a real thing or not, I I don't... Look, I'm I'm really happy for him. But the results just didn't suggest that this was coming at all. In fact, after making the fourth round of the Australian Open, he he did not win back-to-back -back matches at any event until Roland Garros. At the Aussie, he played Michael Emer, Emer sorry, uh, Dalibors Verchina, and Mackie McDonald, who got injured. Those were his three wins. Here at Roland Garros, he played J.J. Wolf who won the first two sets against him and then seemed to get tired, which is fair play, right? I'm not, I'm not taking credit away for that. Uh, Max Purcell and and Vilch, uh, you know, who I just thought I, I, I thought was better. He was better until he collapsed. So I don't think, you know, I think Tomas Martin Echeverry will probably win. Uh, maybe Nishioka will prove me wrong again because I did also think Vilch was going to win. Good for Yoshi, though. I mean, that that's huge. Back-to-back -back fourth rounds at majors uh, is uh, super well-deserved. Let's go to Djokovic-Fokina. The way Novak won this match, meaning like the style he had to implement to win it, was really great to see if you're a Novak fan. Because the way he did this speaks volumes about his fitness. In this match, there were 142 points over four shots. There were 91 points under four shots. About half of those 142 points that were over four shots, half of those were over eight shots. You get in the picture here? This was brutal. This was so physical. This was basically tennis without serve. You had slow conditions, windy conditions. Neither player's serve was going to work. For Davidovich Vakina, that's true in a lot of conditions. For Djokovic, not really the case, but it was true in these conditions. Uh, and these two are both great movers. They're both, let me take it a step further, they're both elite movers. We know that. This is... This is not a bold statement here. But Djokovic ultimately, not at all times, and there were moments in the match for Novak that were bad, particularly 
both five all games in both the first set on serve, three double faults, and in the second set on return, where there were just a, a comedy of shocking mistakes by Novak, including like hitting a ball, uh, a volley on a ball that was going wide, uh, second serve return misses, which is the most un-Novak thing ever. He never misses second serve returns. So, you know, the five all games were bad, but come, come crunch time, come tie break time, it was absolutely spectacular stuff from Djokovic. And it was lockdown, no error mode, Defender trade for as long as required in order for Foki to make an error or hit a winner. And if he hits a winner, cool. Do it seven times. You got it. You better do it seven times. And if you do, too good. If the opportunities are there to, to be offensive, sure. Uh, and, and they were a couple of times. Uh, usually... You know, extremely high percentage, though. Uh, and in some cases, Fokina's legs were already compromised by the time Novak was actually taking, uh, was actually attacking, in which case it was even that much easier to find finishes because Davidovich Fokina was compromised defensively because his legs were, were, were already tired. But in general, the way these tie breaks played out were pretty simple. Fakina was going to make mistakes. Novak was not. And in order for Djokovic to implement that plan, it wasn't like Davidovich Fakina was rolling over. It wasn't like that didn't require an immense amount of, of great defense and great trading and cardio and court coverage and movement. It, it, it required all of those things with the way ADF was playing. You look at the second set tiebreak. Uh, Djokovic plays this super physical one-all point where he, I, I thought, was doing the majority of the defense and the majority of running throughout the point. It's an epic point. And Novak wins it because Fakina tries to kind of thread the needle on a backhand down the line from a low contact point. Wasn't really there. So first of all, we have a, a shot selection or... It's really a tired shot selection bailout unforced error. So who was first to do that? Foki was. But then on the next two points, you have sloppy errors by Davidovich Fakina that just seemed like residue from the long point. They were like tired errors. But Davidovich Fakina came back in this second set tiebreak. So let's pick it back up at 4-5. When Foki had another shot selection error, on a forehand down the line where there were really no decision makers indicating that he should have gone with an attacking forehand down the line. But it was after a long point. And then we had a tired legs defensive error at five all where Fakina was open stance on the backhand. And you just knew that, first of all, he was a little slow to get there. It was a ball that if Fakina had a full gas tank, definitely would have hit probably top spin, safe cross court but he kind of tries to flatten it out down the line and hit kind of counterattack instead of neutralization, and he misses that in the net. And then at 6-5, he's kind of defending, kind of trading. It's in the middle. He's under a little bit of pressure, but he makes kind of a small target error where he goes for this backhand cross court 
and he misses it wide, even though he made clean contact with it. Like you might say, Gil, how do you know it was a small target error? I know it was a small target error because he hit the center of the strings, hit it perfectly clean, perfect contact point, and it just went wide. And that means you're going for the sideline and you're trying to cut it fine. And there really wasn't much of a reason to. And that was the uh, the tie break. So it's like Novak was responding well, was responding better to long rallies. He was holding up physically in those long rallies and after those long rallies. And defensively, he was tougher. And in trading, he was tougher. Uh, Matthew Willis... Uh, put together this really uh, good Excel spreadsheet graphic here. Uh, nine plus shots, points one. And you can see in sets one and two, it was actually Fakina. It was technically even, right? Negligible difference, 26 to 25 Fakina. And then look what happens in the tie break in the long rallies. Djokovic wins the long rallies in the sets one and two tie breaks, seven to three. And what happens in those tie breaks, unforced errors are seven to zero. And I I went back and I, I charted every single point of those tie breaks and I came out with the same thing. Zero unforced errors for Djokovic in the sets one and two tie breaks. You are going to make you are going to have to earn all seven points. And that is what is so difficult about beating Novak in a tiebreak. Always, um, it doesn't mean that he is pushing. He is not. Uh, but one thing he is not doing is making mistakes. Now, why was it that that was only true for the tiebreaks? Right? Like, why, why couldn't Novak crush the long rallies in non-tiebreak situations. Well, a couple things here. First of all, I do think there is more aggressive play by Novak uh, ahead of the tiebreak for energy conservation reasons. You know, I, I do think there is a, I better make sure that in the clutch moments, I'm not tired so that I can do what I need to do and want to do in the highest pressure situations. I won't be worried uh, I'll have a kind of full batteries to do full power batteries to do as much running as I want to do. I think that's part of it. Uh, I think Fakina was more consistent though. I think that's an even bigger part of it. I'm going to use a quote here. Um, and I don't know who said it and I'm going to figure out who said it. I promise. But right now I don't know who said it. The quote is, the best players play like themselves under pressure. I got to find out who said that. But I love the quote. It was it's one of the all-time greats of the sport said this. The best players play like themselves under pressure. Others, mere mortals, they have a reaction to pressure. Most get safe and passive. Not Fakina. Fakina starts hitting the ball 15% harder, and he starts hitting the smaller targets. Essentially, uh, he's just taking more risk. The more stress he feels, the higher the heart rate goes, the more tension and nervousness is pulsating through his body, the more risk he takes. That's just how he reacts. And, you know, Novak... 
does he get a little bit safer? Uh, yes, but I, I don't think, you know, it's not, it's not passive. Uh, there's no deceleration. There's no leaving the ball short. Uh, it's actually just him playing what I think he's confident is the very best version of Novak Djokovic tennis. That's what I think it is. And that is why Djokovic in tie breaks this year has a 13-4 and record and Davidovich Fikina has a 9-10 and record. Uh, but ultimately, like I see these earlier rounds as very specific tests. And Davidovich Fikina, with the way that went, and look, the awesome... I, I know I haven't really said this, so let me just make sure I say this. This quality was really great. And Davidovich Fikina showed in the, in the most clear way possible, in the fullest sense, he showed that he is way too talented to be outside the top 20 because the tennis that he is capable of when it is the optimized version of his tennis is uh, is overwhelmingly good and he went toe-to-toe with an excellent version of Novak Djokovic and this was a really high quality match period so I just want to make sure I say that but Novak's moving on Davidovic Fikina is not and what this really was to me was Djokovic showing that his lungs are in really good shape right now and his court coverage is really good. And if he needs to grind and if he needs to defend and if the game plan against a particular opponent is I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a bunch of balls here, I'm gonna make every ball because I know they're gonna miss, I know that Novak now can execute that. These early round matches it's never a player who who does everything great, right? You're always your third round opponent is always going to have a weakness. For Fakina, it's just that he's a little erratic, right? He cannot match Djokovic for discipline and consistency. Doesn't have the ability to really do it. Maybe maybe at some points, but not under pressure he can't, right? So that is how Novak was going to win. And he was able to execute that what are the next? Let's look forward. What are the next tests here? Well, Juan Pablo Varias, and I think it's going to be Karen Hatchinov. Let's say, just for the sake of of making this of of discussion when it comes to Novak, let's just say it's Varias and Hatchinov. They might have more stubborn consistency than ADF. I expect that at the very least, Hatchinov has more stubborn consistency than ADF does. But they will not move as well. So what does that mean? It means that Novak trading, uh, you know, trading for errors, extending for errors, that's probably not the play against those two. The play against those two is probably to be more offensive and to challenge their defense, which is not going to be on Davidovich Fikina's level because of the movement factor. So Novak's offense is going to be much more important against them than it was against a more error-prone Fikina. Uh, but the key is that when you go through these early rounds, and now it's not really early anymore, we're through to the second week, but when you go through these sub-elite opponents, once you get to, once you get to I don't know, hypothetical Alcaraz in the semis, you're, you're talking about an elite opponent, but pre-elite opponents, um, 
there are certain things that will be tested. And there are certain things, you know, there are certain pathways to victory. I feel like if if Djokovic can show, uh, can dominate these next couple matches with his offense, he will have shown the full range, the full range of his game. And that would be the perfect preparation moving forward. Uh, double faults. Uh, I do want to talk about that. Uh, it's kind of intertwined with the elbow, in my opinion, and it is a bit of a concern. I don't think Djokovic is really hitting kick serves. And that's why he's double faulting more, uh, particularly with the wind. He's double faulting a little bit more often with the wind uh, because when you're playing with the wind, it's imperative that you hit heavier topspin. If you don't hit heavier topspin, the wind is going to take the ball and it's going to push it long. The more topspin you have, the more bite you'll get down, obviously. Uh, so we've seen a lot of Djokovic double faults on the near end at Chatrier, closer to the TV cameras, because he's not getting that that topspin because he's hitting slice serves. He's hitting slice serves, I'm quite certain, to protect the elbow. And that is something to look out for moving forward. It could be a challenge for Novak. It's not as much of an issue on other surfaces. But on clay, we know that the kick serve is uh, is really the most effective second serve to hit. And Novak doesn't really seem to have that. So he's going to have to win without it. And lastly... I do think there's some discomfort for Djokovic playing with the wind at his back, even outside of the serve. And that's one thing that he can definitely improve moving forward. It's like, how do we just get the calibration of the footwork a little bit better? Because it feels like oftentimes when he's been playing with the wind, he's not in good position. He's getting his contact points wrong. He's reaching for the ball a bit. And because he's reaching for the ball... He has to decelerate, and he's not hitting through confidently. And that should be the side where he's really ripping the heavy topspin and just letting the wind kind of take care of the pace and push his opponents back and maybe even come forward with the wind. I feel like that's kind of the aggressive side. The When you're hitting against the wind, that's more the, you know, you can hit a lot of drop shots and kind of D up and hit high balls. You know that if you defend... Uh, you defend with height, you know the wind is going to kind of stop the ball and drop it into the court. So it's it's a wonderful it's wonderful to defend into the wind. And maybe this is going to be irrelevant because the wind is going to go away. I'm not sure. Uh, but one thing has been sure against Fucevic and against Davidovic Fikina, Novak's been a little bit vulnerable with the wind. He's been much better against the wind. And I, I'm sure his team uh, will look at that and try to remedy that. All right, the last match that I will deep dive into is um, Hachinov-Kokonakis. I want to start with the match point. It might be the loudest I've yelled. Uh, top five. I don't think it's the loudest. I'm sorry. I meant to say it's top five loudest I've yelled calling tennis. It had all the ingredients. It was not only a great shot, but an utterly surprising shot and a unique shot. And it wasn't just match point, but it was a high leverage match point because it was 6-5 in the tie break. It had all the ingredients to just ratchet it up to a 10. And I lost my mind calling the shot, uh, this volley. So 6-5 in the fourth set tie break. Hatchinoff hits a good serve. Return is very short. Karen's going to get to step 
uh, well inside the baseline. And he hits a high forehand, high forehand approach right down the middle. He hits the approach right down the middle, but so hard. He hits the crap out of this ball. Um, and Kokonakis is like 20 feet behind the baseline. So think about this. You're hitting a passing shot from the middle of the court from 20 feet back. There's no angle. Like you can't actually hit. It, it's a tough. It's actually pretty tough. So I thought the approach, even though it went middle, was actually really effective. Uh, but the forehand pass by Kokonakis was good. Obviously, Tanasi, after hitting the pass... He needs to start sprinting forward. He's 20 feet behind the baseline hitting this pass. He needs to run forward. Cover the drop volley, right? Well, Hachinov hits this stretch backhand volley. And he sticks it fast and deep. And it goes down the middle again. Right down the middle. But wait a second. Kokonakis is sprinting forward. The ball is going to land like on the baseline. Kokonakis is running past the baseline to try to get forward. And it, it's like the, it's the, it's almost comical. It was almost comical to watch because the ball was like three feet away from Kokonakis, but there was no way he was getting to it because his body weight was just polar opposite of what he needed to of where he needed to be. He needed to stop at the baseline, but he was on a full sprint right through the baseline, and he ended up slipping, falling on his ass. Winner. Volley winner. So, like, think about this. Kokonakis was 20 feet behind the baseline, and, Kokonak and, and Hachinov's volley went past him. It went through him, straight through the middle. Uh, it was just a very funky sequence, but at the end of the day, I don't know if it was a little bit lucky that the volley was so good from Hatchinov, but it was a great volley, and some people might watch it the first time and be like, oh, bad luck for Kokonakis, he slipped. No, that's, that's the wrong way. If you watch it carefully, you'll realize he had no chance of keeping his footing and returning that. It just wasn't going to happen because his body weight inertia, inertia was uh, just going forward too fast for him to stop before the ball went by. All right, that's the match point. But I want to uh, kind of hit bullet points here. I don't have this like big thesis about the match, but I'm just going to go through a couple of points. First of all, big revelation for me were Hachinov's drop shots. I have never thought much of Karen Hachinov's feel at all, but his drop shots were awesome. And they were important. And he has the power to drive opponents back. And it's so important in these conditions that you have ways to finish points. Karen does not, you know, despite the match point, Karen's transition game is not all that confident. So he wants to finish off the ground desperately. He doesn't really want to hit, have to hit tough volleys. The drop shot was there for him. Uh, the shot selection was good on it. But the execution just blew me away. And that's all I can say about it was the biggest, especially in the first set, my biggest wow for Karen Hatchinov was his drop shot. 
For Kokonakis, uh, I felt he was kind of banged up from the five-setter that he played against Favorinka, and there were a couple of effects here. First of all, it just, I thought it wore on his attitude. It made his attitude negative, and the serve was just a nothing burger until the third set. And we kind of know who the better baseliner is here, right? Hachinov is the better, the tougher baseliner. Look, Kokonakis might have the best ground stroke on the court, which is his forehand, but when you, when you, kind of put the whole package together, movement, consistency, backhand, obviously. When you put it all together, Hatchinov is the better baseliner, and Kokonakis, his first serve is supposed to be a huge weapon, and it just wasn't doing anything for him until the third set where it actually got red hot. Uh, but I feel like uh, one of, you know, I, I think he had this kind of right peck that was bother him, bothering him, which he actually tore. He tore his peck in 2016 and had surgery on it. So there's this massive scar on his right pectoral, apparently. Um, I, I feel like that was part of maybe the discomfort in serving. Then again, maybe not. Maybe that's baloney because he th served well in the third set. Uh, and then late in the fourth set, the forehand really started to fail him. Like if you look at the tie break, ultimately at the end of the fourth set, uh, despite the match point being that epic, uh, the biggest problem for Kokonakis in that tiebreak is the forehand uh, went haywire on him a couple of times, and it looked like tired legs. For me, it looked like tired legs. Uh, a little bit, a little bit slow. Footwork a bit off, and I thought that made the difference on some of those forehand mistakes. So yeah, I do think the, the Vavrinka five-setter, I think that cooked him. I think that cooked Kokonakis for this a little bit. Uh, Tanasi did have a really good game plan. Uh, I liked it. Uh, avoiding the backhand and backhand exchange was, I think, the primary goal for him. And as a result, you know, he wanted to use his backhand slice to set up his forehand. He did that well. He wanted to use his backhand down the line as much as possible. I was impressed with how well he ended up executing the backhand down the line. Because I thought he'd maybe miss that a lot trying to go for it. But that was great. That was a great way to kind of set up his forehand. And it worked very well. So smart game planning by Kokonakis. He has good active feet to find backhands. I think I might have mentioned this talking about the Vavrinka match. But the one problem with Kokonakis, you know, his forehand is a great clay court weapon. But he doesn't have the Tsitsipas or even kind of team level speed Obviously Nadal, but I kind of want to leave him out of this because he's lefty. You know, just picture in your head Tsitsipas because he's righty. Uh, the speed that he possesses to recover his position when he's hitting runaround forehands. And that's the one problem with Kokonakis. He's very desperate to find forehands. Doesn't really have the recovery with his speed. I want to say um, back to Hachinov, really. And finishing up my points on Hachinov. This was another admirable mental performance. He was playing from behind the entire fourth set. And he never started thinking about a fifth. And it would have been so easy for him to start thinking about a fifth set. Because while Kokonakis just got red hot on the first serve in the third set... And that was really what the difference was. In the fourth set, you kind of knew it was going to fall off. But Hachinov had some, some real disappointments at the start of the fourth set. He was behind the whole time. At any point, he could have been like, 
this isn't my set and start thinking about a fifth. But man, just every single point, he was in it mentally. And he wanted to win the fourth set, like desperately. And you realize that's not normal. Like there's usually a, a difference in motivation when a player is down two sets to one. We see this all the time. When they, are, when they have this early deficit, and especially when that early deficit becomes a late deficit, in this case it did, as Hatchinov just couldn't find that break of serve, I mean, it's really hard to stay motivated and stay focused. It was unbelievable how badly Hatchinov wanted to win that fourth set, despite not needing to win the fourth set. And he breaks it 5-4 to stay in it. And that's the difference, because he wins the tiebreak. So look, unshakable mental and physical, and this is why Karen Hatchinov rules in best of five. This is why, because he can play long as as much as... Look, first of all, he runs so much for a big man, and we take it for granted, and we think it's normal, and we don't talk about it, maybe because of Medvedev and Zverev, but it's not normal, and we should talk about it, because Hatchinov, you know, carries around even a little bit more weight than them. He doesn't have the speed that they have, but... He has the stamina and the endurance, and we should not take that for granted. He's six foot six. So he's just look, he played the five setter in the first round against Constant Lestien. Uh so so he had to go long. He had to come back from two sets to love down early in the tournament. But you never have any doubt about him physically. There's never anything kind of bothering him, it seems. And mentally, as I just got into, the guy just never goes away. This is why he rules in best of five. This is why in seven Roland Garros main draws, he has now made six fourth rounds. He is six for seven, making the round of 16. And he doesn't even like clay. That's how good he is in best of five. Chapeau Alcaraz. Uh, honestly, stylistically, I was thinking, hmm, kind of, the kind of player who can give Alcaraz some problems, just uncomfortably offensive. We've talked about making Alcaraz feel like a passenger. Uh, I think these tennis balls have really benefited Shapovalov because they fluff up and you can hit them really hard and they're so heavy that they're a little bit, they're actually pretty easy to control. And Shapo just wants to, you know, take these, nuclear cuts at the tennis ball and the key is controlling it. So I, I think these balls were good for him. Stylistically, I think this was an interesting thing on paper, but only if he plays well. And he played well for one set and that was a competitive set, but he didn't play well for the other two sets and that wasn't. I don't think I want to take it any further than that. Uh, Shapo also has a double fault problem. It's real bad. It's a real double fault problem. Uh, let me let me pull up this, the stats for you on this. Um, it's as bad as anybody's. It's the most inconsistent second serve uh, really in the top 50 because while Bublik has a higher double fault rate, uh, sorry, not Bublik, uh, Cressy has a higher double fault rate. Bublik's not in the top 50. Otherwise, I think Bublik would too. Uh, those guys hit two first serves. So I'm not going to sit here and be like, their second serves are more inconsistent. Freaking what second serves? There are no second serves. So, as far as players who hit second serves, Chapo's got by far 
the worst, by far the worst. 9.4% double fault rate. He's double faulting. Um, Almost one out of every 10 points, he's double faulting. I mean, that's at least every other game. At least every other game he's double faulting. In 2023, that is. Felix is next worse at 5.9%. Do you realize there's a huge difference there as well? That like Felix being technically third worst after Cressy, but really second worst. He He's much better than Chapo. So that's a huge issue. And lastly, Francisco Sorrindolo beats Taylor Fritz. Uh, I felt this match was like 50-50 coming in. That was my feeling on it. Um, Sorrindolo shows once again, look, forehands rule on clay. They rule. And I'll just quickly, you know, simplified version. I tweeted this. I tweeted these exact things. I'll just go through this again. Uh, again, oversimplifying this in some ways, but you have to hit more forehands on clay than any other surface. You are going to hit more because you're going to get less unreturned serves and you're going to get longer points. You're going to get more neutralizations even off the ground. So less unreturned serves, longer points. And secondly, more time for runaround footwork. There are literally balls on clay that you can hit as forehands that on other surfaces would have to be backhands. So you're going to hit more. Not only are you going to hit more, your other stuff is going to be less effective. Not just your serve, which I already mentioned. Your backhand is probably too flat, especially if you have a two-hander. If you have a two-hander, your backhand is probably going to be too flat to do enough damage for it to be a weapon. Throw that out the window. Are you a net rusher? Good luck with that. Your approach shots are not going to stay as low, and they are not going to skid through the court. They're not going to penetrate as much. There's the... There's going to be more, you know, time for your uh, approach shot to kind of sit up for an easier pass. Plus, when you split step, your footing isn't going to be as good. So you're not going to be able to kind of cover the net as well either. So good luck if you're a net rusher. So the forehand better be your finishing weapon. You're going to hit more and your other stuff isn't going to work as well. So those high RPM forehands, they are king. Sarundalo was Awesome on the forehand side. And Fritz committed the cardinal sin. This is becoming kind of a theme. You guys have heard me talk about this uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to Pass matches a lot recently. When a player has an awesome forehand that you want to avoid and a backhand that you want to attack, do not hit mindlessly over and over again into the ad court. They will camp there. They will hit forehands from the backhand side of the court. And that is the worst thing that can happen. Because in, in most cases, in Sarindolo's case, this is true. Their forehand is actually better from that part of the court. Because they have a better angle inside in. Uh, they hit better angles inside out. It is a harder shot to read. It has better disguise. Uh, because of kind of the footwork and the way the hips are angled when you're moving to your left and hitting a forehand at the same time. It's the worst thing you can do. And Fritz, especially on the backhand, and Jim Courier pointed this out on Tennis Channel, it was 110% on the money. 
Fritz was going cross-court way too much with his backhand. And Sarindolo was cheating. And Fritz wasn't making him pay for cheating. You have to make them pay. You have to go to the forehand if you're afraid of the forehand. If you do, if you want to make them hit the backhand, you better hit into the deuce. It's a must. Um, unless there's some very specific variables that put you in, in, in a unique position. Um, we don't need to get into that. But Fritz made that mistake. All right. This was fun. Enjoyed this. Hope you did too. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.